and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and our senior reporter, Luke Haynes, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we'll be discussing the GP workforce and which parts of England are most underdoctored. We look at how primary care networks are faring with recruitment of new staff and why being a clinical director is an increasingly tough job. And we highlight reaction to the government's plans for how England will live with COVID, as well as some updates to the COVID-19 vaccination programme. Finally, we've got some good news about GP partners to round things off. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. After recording remotely for a number of weeks now, we're actually back face to face in our offices in our secret basement soundproof room. First up today, we're taking a look at the GP workforce. Last week, GP Online launched a new interactive map that allows you to look at the number of patients per GP in every CCG and PCN in England and see how your area compares to the national average and others in your CCG or integrated care system. The aim was to highlight the wide variation across the country and allow people to see the most underdoctored parts of England. Nick, you put all of this together. What does the map tell us about the variation in the numbers of doctors across the country? We know there's a big shortage of GPs. There are currently around 1,500 uh, fewer fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs now than uh, than there were about half a decade ago, despite the government promising to increase the workforce over that period. Uh, but what the, the map and charts we've put together show is how unevenly that shortfall in the GP workforce is spread across the country. GPs in the most underdoctored CCGs, where numbers of patients per full-time equivalent GP are highest, are looking after nearly twice as many patients as their counterparts in areas that haven't struggled so much with GP recruitment. So, for example, Hull CCG has 3,185 patients per full-time equivalent GP, which is the highest figure for a CCG in England. And less than 150 miles away across the north of England, Wirral CCG has 1,776 patients per full-time equivalent GP, which is the lowest figure for a CCG. So the average GP in Hull is responsible for 80% more patients than their counterparts in the Wirral and 42% more than the median figure across all CCGs, which is 2,239 patients per full-time equivalent GP. Professor Sir Chris Whitty, England's uh, Chief Medical Officer, used his annual report last year to highlight GP shortages in deprived coastal areas and asked the government to look into how that might be linked to GP funding. Our our map reflects the shortfalls he pointed out in coastal areas, but it also flags up shortfalls that aren't so coastal. And as you mentioned, the map allows users to scroll in for more detail at the more localised level of primary care networks. And what you can see from that is that even within CCGs that appear to have a good number of GPs overall, member PCNs may still face significant workforce problems. What does all this mean in terms of the workload pressures in some of these areas where there's a real shortage of doctors? We've been writing about heavy workload since well before the pandemic, but obviously the pandemic has heaped a lot of extra pressure onto general practice. Appointments are at record levels. General practice delivered 367 million appointments in total in 2021. And as we've discussed in previous episodes of the podcast, the average GP is delivering nearly twice as many appointments per day than the level considered safe by the BMA, according to our own polling. Previous work we've done on the primary care workforce showed that some areas with extreme GP shortages have been able to compensate by hiring larger numbers of nurses and other staff, but in many areas that isn't the case. So 
Ultimately, areas with extreme GP shortages are simply facing extreme versions of the workload crisis seen at a national level. And those sorts of conditions are precisely what create the unmanageable workload that's reflected in polling by the, the GMC, BMA and our own website. And um, the high rates of burnout, early retirements, practice closures we've seen in recent years are all closely linked to that. Thanks, Nick. Um, There's actually been a really positive story about the workforce since our last news podcast, which we're going to talk about in our good news spot at the end of the show. So stay tuned for that. Luke, you've also been looking at workforce figures over the last week or so, but this time for primary care networks. You've been assessing how networks are getting on recruiting under the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme, or ARRS. For those who don't know, the ARRS provides funding for PCNs to recruit additional staff, including pharmacists, social prescribers, paramedics, dietitians, among others. The aim is to recruit 26,000 additional primary care staff by March 2024. I mean, we've talked about progress on the ARRS on the podcast before, but these latest figures do have details from more PCNs than previous data. What are they telling us about how things are going? Yes, yeah, so the main take from the latest stats, which are from the end of December, is that the ARS is sort of lagging behind at the halfway point of the scheme. So as you mentioned in the in that intro, um, some 26,000 extra staff are supposed to enter the workforce by March 2024. But the figures suggest that only around 12,000 full-time equivalent workers um, have been hired uh, by the halfway point. Um, at the start of December. So that total is around 1,000 FTE staff um, off where it's supposed to be at this stage. In the context of sort of individual PCNs, the data um, suggests that 9.6 staff have been hired per network when it should be around 12 at, at this stage, and it will go on to 21 by the by the final year. Um, pharmacists continue to be the biggest group of staff by far, with um, almost 3,000 being hired since 2019, while social prescribers and care coordinators make up the top three. It's worth bearing in mind that only 82% of PCNs are reporting workforce data um, at the minute, or that was for December. Um, It's going up by around 5% each time that they report. Um, And it's also worth noting that the total number of FTE staff um, is an estimate for uh, 100% of PCNs. But for um, all intents and purposes, the scheme looks like it's failed to hit its halfway target, which will be massively uh, frustrating for practices who need these staff to to come in and take some of the heat off those already in, in teams. Um, and also to carry out PCM work, which is going to ramp up again in in April. Um, But it will also be of huge concern to NHS England and the government, um, given this is um, the government's sort of flagship recruitment programme to tackle workforce shortages in general practice and to deliver the ambitions of the NHS long-term plan. Yeah, I mean, obviously recruitment is a bit of a challenge, but it's not the only difficult that primary care networks are facing, is it? I mean, you've recently been looking in more detail at the role clinical directors are playing. You've been speaking to quite a few of clinical directors and they're dealing with some really tough challenges, aren't they? Yeah, so as you say, there are quite a few issues facing PCNs and clinical directors at the moment. And I think it's probably easier to um, to list through them um, just because there are so so many or seem to be. So what um, seems to be one of the overriding uh, problems at the minute for most CDs is their workload and the sheer complexity of the role. Um, so clinical directors have told me that they, they're having to sort of put in double the amount of hours that they would be expected to or at least are paid for um, in order to keep on top of their work at the minute. Um, a number of CDs have also said that the role is, is ever expanding and that they're having to juggle numerous responsibilities at, at one time. So that can be anything from the sort of HR aspect of hiring new staff to commissioning um, sort of services in their area or looking for new um, services that can be brought in. 
a few have also made the point the role as well as um, for PCNs it needs more uh, needs more clarity it needs to be more clearly defined they also want someone from NHS England or at least health leaders to come out and specifically describe what, what it is they are looking for from a clinical director so they aren't lumped with every task under the sun, which um, seems to be the, <laughs> the situation at the minute. Uh, a number of GPs have also said to me um, that they're concerned about a lack of information on the future of PCN management funding and the COVID vaccination campaign. So last year, I think if you'll remember, the government provided additional management funding to help clinical directors cope with extra responsibilities that were put on them. For example, the uh, the continuation of the COVID vaccine campaign. And in a lot of cases, this funding was used by networks to hire locums to cover clinical work that CDs just couldn't fulfil um, because of their PCM responsibilities. Now, most agree that this funding is essential to help them run PCNs effectively, but NHS England hasn't so far um, confirmed whether this funding will be renewed um, in 2022-23, which would be huge um, bad news for for everyone, particularly CDs, um, who tell me that their job basically would be undeliverable without this funding to help to sort of secure additional workforce um, or at least secure additional workers while they're busy doing other things. And as I mentioned earlier, um, another issue is uncertainty around the the vaccine campaign. So the enhanced service for the COVID vaccine campaign technically expires in April, but we know that sort of elderly uh, patients and the vulnerable will be offered an additional uh, shot to, to boost their protection this spring. Um, but there, again, hasn't been any information around who will be delivering that as of yet and um, what support they'll be receiving. Um, and we know that planning vaccination campaigns take time and effort, particularly around recruiting workforce and securing premises. So CDs want clarity on this pretty much Im- immediately. Um, so summing up all of these issues, which are piling on top of CDs and making the role really hard work and possibly making a few consider their positions. And one of the most popular articles on our website over the last week or so has been your interview with Dr. Fazan Hussein, who's a GP in Newham in East London and also a clinical director. I mean, she's someone who's been a huge advocate for PCNs, but she's decided to stand down from that role. I mean, we're hoping to have Dr. Hussein on the podcast next week to explain a bit more about her decision. But it really is quite concerning if someone as engaged as her is standing down from the role, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I sort of remember turning to you in the office and saying, oh, Dr. Hussain's resigned from her CD role. And we were both quite surprised at that. And I think, as you say, other people have um, have reacted similarly. Um, Dr. Hussain has always been a strong advocate of PCN. She sort of continues to be. Um, and she was also a big advocate of uh, primary care homes, which are the model that PCNs are based on, roughly. Um, however, she's stepped back because um, she said that it was actually what's being delivered on the ground isn't what has been promised or what was promised at the beginning when practices signed up. Um, So she told me that she hadn't really seen proper collaboration between care providers um, as what was supposed to be happening under PCNs. And she said that key features such as the impact and investment fund or the IIF um, was just a super quaff, which hasn't proved transformational so far. Um, and she particularly questioned the the sort of the merits of um, of groups of practices delivering the flu vaccine rather than just on an individual basis. Um, so as you say, a lot of attention has been paid to her exit uh, from the scheme because it just feels like she was one of the original sort of, I guess, champions of the PCM model who is sticking their head above the parapet and saying, this isn't working and, um, and I can't keep pretending that it is. Um, And if she's saying this, then sort of who else is thinking the same? 
Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about the the investment and impact fund in a minute. But obviously, PCNs are, are really a key part of the five-year GP contract, which is set to run until March 2024. But there is, as we've talking about here, there is growing disquiet about the contract as a whole. And many GPs feel it's not addressing the challenges facing general practice. In fact, the BMA GP committee passed a motion earlier this month calling for a new fit-for-purpose contract, which suggests that even it doesn't believe that the current contract that it actually negotiated is right for general practice as things currently stand. I mean, what's going on there, Nick? So, uh, as you said, the the BMA's GP committee has voted to demand more support in the next two financial years to help the profession uh, deal with the impact of the COVID-19 backlog. Uh, and they've they voted to call for a new fit for purpose deal to start after the current five year contract comes to an end. And this isn't by any means the first time the existing contract has been criticised. We we reported a while back on LMCs voting for a switch to an item of service contract, which some people believe could help general practice limit workload more effectively and move away from the existing deal, which has been described as something like a an all-you-can-eat buffet that heaps endless pressure on practices. GPs have also called a few times for a rethink on the funding linked to the five-year contract, both before and during the pandemic. Um, But the BMA says the existing contract, which is built off of the so-called new GMS contract that took effect in 2004, simply doesn't reflect the experiences and needs of GPs and their patients anymore. And some of the factors that BMA's GP leaders have said they want a new contract to address are the falling GP numbers and rising demand we've talked about already today, but also uh, problems with outdated premises, for example. Um, And they've highlighted the impact of the COVID jab campaign uh, in terms of the workload that that's heaped onto general practice and a huge rise at the same time in abuse from patients uh, on the morale of practice staff as key reasons why a transformative contract is needed, uh, as well as factors such as ageing population and complexity of workload linked to that. They've said they want a new contract to support the independent contractor model. So there is support for that traditional element of general practice within whatever comes out of a new deal. Uh, But they've also said that traditional models of care have struggled to cope with the rise in demand and highlighted the need to to break down barriers across primary, community, social and secondary care. So 20 years on from the new GMS contract, we could be heading for another big moment for the funding and structure behind general practice. And there there could be major pressure for changes uh, that the BMA and many GPs may not like the look of, given recent comments from the government about looking at nationalising general practice. A big problem that people have with the contract is around networks. There is a lot of concern, as Luke discussed then, about PCNs are actually increasing workload rather than doing what many people had hoped they would, which was helping to address the workload crisis. The introduction of the Investment and Impact Fund, the IIF, which is effectively the COF for PCNs, which Luke just mentioned, uh, is looking like it will be particularly problematic. Much of that has been suspended as a result of the pandemic in the past year or so, but a raft of new targets are scheduled to be introduced from this April. Luke, as you mentioned um, there, clinical directors are worried about the work involved in this, but the BMA has also indicated it's not very happy with the IIF either. Yeah, that's right. So the GPC chair, Dr. Farah Jamil, she came out uh, last week and said that she wasn't particularly happy with the IF and the sort of amount of work that people are having to put into it to get this funding. So she actually called the IF misaligned and overly bureaucratic. 
She said that it was undermining GP's ability to deliver quality patient care. Um, her comments come sort of almost two weeks after the BMA demanded showdown talks for a new fit-for-purpose deal. And um, and when she spoke to GP online, she said that two years into the pandemic and with sort of record amounts of, of backlog, this sort of initiative wasn't wasn't helping people. Um, and she she said that now that that contract just looked wholly unrealistic and, and misaligned with with targets. Yes, yeah, it's, it's fair to say that the BMA and the GPC are potentially pushing for this in negotiations as a as a key point that they hopefully will be changed to sort of change things for, for GPs on on the ground who are, as we know, very busy. No, I think that that is a really good point you make there, isn't it? I mean, the the five year contract that was something that was introduced in 2019 before anyone had even heard of COVID 19. So the world is a very different place, and general practice is a very different place in many ways than it was back then. Anyway, speaking about COVID-19, this week saw the government in England announce its plans for how it intends to live with COVID, which will see mandatory self-isolation for anyone testing positive scrapped, along with all regulations relating to close contacts. The plan also highlights a huge scaling back of free testing from April, although the it sounds like the ONS COVID surveillance survey will remain intact. Luke, there seems to be a bit of confusion around what the changes in testing will mean for NHS staff. What do we actually know about this? So the government's living with COVID guidance or um, the ignoring COVID guidance, as some people are probably calling it, um, suggests that asymptomatic testing of staff will end this April, while asymptomatic and symptomatic testing will stop for the general public at the same time. It also says that free symptomatic testing will remain available to social care staff, um, but it fails to make clear whether NHS staff will receive uh, free testing of any kind in the future. I did go to the Department of Health and Social Care to seek clarification on this, but um, all they said to me was that details of testing for NHS staff will be provided in due course. Um, So people should keep their eyes peeled. But um, in the meantime, health leaders have asked for urgent clarification um, around staff testing. And they've said that both staff and patients deserve to feel confident when in health um, settings, um, so either working or accessing services. And the NHS Confederation has specifically called for dedicated funding to ensure that um, NHS staff can continue to, to test themselves. There's been a lot of criticism from the scientific and medical community about the plans. Um, and many people working in the NHS, including general practice, are not very happy at all about this, um, the steps that are being taken. Um, Nick, what's the BMA and others have to say about the whole living with COVID plan? The BMA is concerned that the changes are premature. The the removal of free testing from the 1st of April is a particular concern for the BMA. Uh, They and other organisations have said that the change will increase health inequalities and put vulnerable patients at higher risk. Uh, The government's line has been that even once free testing ends, they want the public to exercise caution uh, and take responsibility for keeping others safe, for example, by not soldiering on and going to work if they feel ill. But the BMA argues that free tests are the key tool we have not only to monitor the spread of COVID, but also to allow people to take that responsibility for keeping others safe by testing if they're a close contact, for example. Another factor that could make it difficult for many people to stay off work is that self-isolation support payments will stop, uh, along with some other services such as uh, medicines delivery services that, uh, that, have been, um, that have been in operation during the pandemic. 
yes, it does all seem like a lot of things stopping all at the same time, which could potentially lead to problems. We've also seen some changes and updates to the COVID-19 vaccination programme over the past couple of weeks, some of which will have more of an impact on general practice than others. Maybe of most relevance is the news that Luke touched on earlier, that the most vulnerable people will be offered a further booster jab this spring after all four UK governments accepted new JCVI recommendations. This will cover everyone aged 75 and over, those aged 12 and over who are immunosuppressed and all adults living in care homes for older people. And they should be getting a further booster dose six months after their last jab. The JCVI has also indicated that a wider booster programme will also be needed in the autumn for more older adults and clinical at-risk groups, although it's said it's too early to say who this will cover. All four UK governments have also accepted the JCVI's recommendation to vaccinate healthy 5 to 11-year-olds. As people will know, the NHS began vaccinating at-risk children at the very end of January. And in England, primary care networks have been leading that. However, NHS England has said that most PCN sites will not play a lead role in vaccinating healthy children due to the heavy workload in general practice. And the expectation is that this will mainly be done by pharmacies and vaccination sites. The government has said vaccinating children will start in April when more paediatric doses of the Pfizer vaccine will be available and that in most cases appointments will be booked through the national booking system. So finally today, we've just got time for our regular good news spot, which this week is about the workforce and more specifically partners. As part of the five-year contract deal, NHS England announced plans for a new golden hello scheme for new partners, which launched in July 2020. The scheme provides payments of up to £20,000 for GPs and other clinical staff who take on partnership roles. Number of partners have been in free fall since 2015, which we've reported on many times over the years, and the hope was that this scheme would help reverse that worrying trend. Nick, after months of asking, you finally got some data on what's going on with this. What do we know about the numbers who've taken up the scheme? So we managed to get hold of some figures that show uh, a total of 1,360 people were admitted to the new to partnership payment scheme between its launch in July 2020 and the end of January this year, so January 2022. We know from NHS England's annual report that 488 new partners joined the scheme in the 2020-21 financial year. But these new figures are the first that show the full extent of uptake of these partnership incentives, the golden hello payments that you mentioned. More than £21.5 million in total has been spent on the scheme so far. And although it's open to a range of primary care staff who could become partners at a practice, the vast majority of people signing up to the scheme are GPs. Although the the scheme launched in July 2020, anyone who took up a partnership for the first time from the 1st of April 2020 can apply. And so far, 1,308 GPs, 25 nurses, 20 pharmacists, four paramedics, two physician associates, I feel like I'm about to say, and a partridge in a pear tree, (laughs) uh, and one physiotherapist have done so. These are headcount figures and translated into full-time equivalents, the 1,360 new partners come to 1,050 full-time equivalent new partners. So that's still a really significant number. And the, the golden hello payments they receive are tapered down in line with their working hours. 
we talked about partnerships um, a lot, um, but partnerships have obviously been at the heart of general practice for decades, and they really are the basis for the independent contractor model, which, as we discussed in the last news podcast, really delivers in terms of value for money and allows GPs perhaps more freedom to advocate on behalf of their patients. But obviously, the steep fall in the number of partners in recent years has contributed to the making the role seem less and less attractive, as those that are left often have to take on huge workloads to keep practices going. So I suppose we've ended up in a bit of a vicious cycle of losing more and more partners. Do these figures suggest that the tide is turning on that huge fall? What we can see from the the latest GP workforce data for December 2021 is that for the first time since 2015, the number of GP partners actually rose slightly between one set of data published by NHS Digital and the next. So it's hard to know whether that's attributable solely to the new to partnership scheme, but it's quite likely a significant factor. Um, there's a there's a long way to go to reverse the decline. I mean, as you've touched on, the numbers of full-time equivalent GPs in partnership roles have been in free fall in recent years. They've, they've fallen from 21,655 in September 2015 to just 16,943 last December. So that's a, a massive 22% drop. But the, the new to partnership payment scheme figures suggest that um, take up has actually accelerated in the current financial year compared with 2020-21. There are about uh, 54 partners per month joining in the nine months of 2020-21 in which it was operational compared with 87 per month in 2021 22 um, And, you know, if the scheme could stabilise partnership numbers, let alone begin to push them up again, that would be a major gain for, for general practice. The the key then, obviously, will be to make sure that whatever comes from things like the new contract deal that we've talked about earlier are enough to persuade them to stay. Well, yeah, but it's, it's definitely a good start. And so it's definitely worthy of our good news section this week. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Nick and Luke. Don't forget, you can catch up with all the latest news affecting general practice on our website, gponline.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at gponlinenews. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please do think about rating us, and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back next week. See you then.